0: Hi everyone! Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Castelli here today with Matt Argesinger, former stock advisor turned lead advisor of Motley Fool's mogul and Million Acres platforms, where he helps members find today's best real estate investment opportunities. In today's episode, we discuss how Matt went from stock advisor to lead advisor of Motley Fool's real estate investment program, how he analyzes investment opportunities portfolio allocation, and his opinion on the current state of the financial markets during this COVID crisis. We hope everyone is at home and taking the necessary steps to stay safe as COVID-19 continues to impact the nation. The Real Estate CPA has created a Slack community for real estate investors to share ideas on how to protect their businesses and real estate investments, as well as stay up to date on all the various laws and best practices as the coronavirus crisis progresses. The community has already grown to over 500 members in the last few days and some amazing discussions are already taking place. We invite all of our podcast listeners to join the community. The link will be in the show notes below, but you can also join by visiting www cashflowcommunity.slack.com. Again, that's www.cashflowcommunity.slack.com. Again, the link will be in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you in the community. But for right now, we'll jump right into today's episode. Matt, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little information on your background? Sure. So I, let's see, I joined The Motley Fool uh, about 12 years ago.
2: and for most of that time I was on the investing side of the business still am on the investing side but that was of course mostly was stock investing and that's what the Motley Fool is known for and going back you know over 25 years and recently though we you know I, I was able to uh, fortunately have the opportunity to pivot to real estate we launched a new real estate company uh, under the Motley Fool called Million Acres and I'm the lead analyst on that service, uh, on the on the premium service we have underneath like, that we can talk about. Uh,
0: yeah, long career at The Motley Fool, and now focusing on real estate. Nice, nice. So as someone who works for The Motley Fool, as an ex-stock advisor, what sparked your interest to get into real estate investing in the first place? Uh, I kind of fell into real estate
2: uh, a little bit. My wife and I, when we were buying, shortly after we were married, this is a long time ago, I don't want to date myself, but we, we were looking for a place. Uh, a home to buy. And uh, we came across uh, a property in DC and in Washington DC, almost every townhouse or row house in the city has what's called an English basement apartment on the bottom. And uh, so it's always almost always what we call an in-law suite or a separate apartment. And so we bought this property and we started renting out the the basement apartment. And in fact it was a great way to you know do that and, and pay most of the mortgage for the, the house we were living in, which was great. And so we actually did that a few more times uh, over the years. And now we acquired kind of a small portfolio of rental properties in DC that my wife nowadays mainly manages. And a few years ago, um, kind of expanded on that a little bit and started investing in commercial real estate opportunities as well. So I've been an equity owner in several commercial properties uh, in addition to owning those those rental properties. So that was kind of always my side gig as I'm doing stock investing uh, at The Motley Fool I had kind of this side career as a as a real estate investor, and that's slowly become, I'd say, a greater greater percentage of my overall investment strategy in my portfolio.
0: And would you be able to give us a, a brief overview of what you do uh, in the Million Acres and Mobile Services at the Motley Fool? Uh, sure. So we launched millionacres.com
2: just this past September, and that is a totally free site. You know, you can read all kinds of content about real estate from home flipping, to REIT investing, to commercial real estate investing, and uh, we've gotten some great early traction to the site, which has been great. And then underneath or behind the scenes in Million Acres is a service called Mogul, which is a premium subscription service. And we developed that. uh, We launched that last year as well. And that service focuses on providing recommendations in the REIT space, public equities that are uh, real estate related, as well as private commercial real estate offerings. And this kind of all really came about, you know, we, we talked for many years about getting into real estate as NASA class, the Molly Fool. But there really wasn't a good way for do-it-yourself investors to actually do it until the Jobs Act, until all the regulations came out and crowdfunding became a lot more accessible. Uh, syndication became a lot more accessible in the real estate world. And so that was kind of, we, had, we looked at that and said, okay, this market's growing. How can we take advantage of it? And uh, especially for our type of investor who's usually investing on their own Uh, and wanting to do that, suddenly we had this market that we could tap into. And so we thought this is a great time to, we provide for decades, we provided advice on investing in stocks. Now we can provide advice on investing in real estate. And so my main job working on mobile is to provide education, to provide investment ideas, again, on REITs, equities, and and then private commercial real estate deals in the crowdfunding world, 506C deals. And really we're trying to, educate our investors about this new asset class, many of which who just focused on stocks for most of their investing career. now we're saying, Hey, there's a real estate, it's a huge asset class It's actually by most measures, the biggest asset class in the world. There's a lot of opportunity now with, with crowdfunding. Here's our proprietary way to invest in it. Um, here's some of the factors we look at and we've, you know, the, the traction has been incredible. And, you know, i of course, I'll just shout out to the real estate, you guys, at the real estate CPA, because you guys have provided some great tax related content for us, you know, as our members learn how to invest in real estate, they're also learning about all the sort of interesting tax uh, nuances with real estate, many of which are such big advantages, you know? And so that's been fantastic. So it's really just been an educational service, but also an investing service trying to get our members into real estate and into the best opportunities we see. Why did you guys
3: settle on like the commercial crowdfunding sort of space versus individual multifamily
2: syndicates or uh, anything else like that? Well, yeah, it's a great question. I think what going in, we wanted, to, we wanted to work with some of the leading platforms that were out there only because our team was small. We didn't have a lot of experience. I'm probably the person with the most experience on the team. I mean, throughout actually The Motley Fool. And I don't even have that much experience. you know. And so I think it was important for us to kind of take a slow step into this and realize that there are some great platforms out there. Uh, CrowdStreet's one of them, RealCrowd, uh, RealtyMogul, to name just a few. That have been doing this for several years. They've got kind of the infrastructure to do it. Uh, they have their own underwriting process, which helps us out a lot. And so, in a lot of ways, I think we're vetting deals that already have been professionally vetted, which is great, and I think gives us a little more confidence in some of the investment ideas we're bringing to our investors. Um, I hope that eventually we can do, as you say, we can do sort of you know single asset syndicate deals, do deals directly with sponsors, and not rely so much on the, the platforms themselves. That's a little ways in the
0: future. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I understand, you know, I've I've read a lot of the mobile stuff uh, on the mobile website, a lot of your recommendations. And sometimes I'm like, oh man, I wish, you know, I could get on one of these deals because they really are some good picks over there. Uh, I was wondering if you'd be able to give us, you know, uh, I know know there's a bunch of different uh, metrics you look at, a a bunch of different criteria. Would you be able to like, give us a quick overview of what those criteria are that you look at when analyzing a deal? Yeah, sure.
2: So we we have what we call the mobile score, which is a score from zero to 100. And generally we're looking for deals that score 75 or above. And that's based on several factors. Uh, one, we kind of read the platform. So I mentioned, you know, Crowdstreet, Real Crowd, uh, Cadre, those other platforms, we tend to have a score for those as well. And that's based mostly on their track record and kind of our assessment of what they provide to the investor. And then we look at the deal itself. That's a big part of the score, which is just, you know, location of the deal, what are the demand and supply factors behind it? So if we're looking at a multifamily deal in an urban environment, let's say Washington DC, you know, what are the supply what's the competitive supply available in the submarket? What is the demand for that? Um, those are some of the big factors that go into that. But then we look at the sponsor, we take a pretty big look at the sponsor. What's the track record of the management team behind the deal? Have they done deals through multiple business cycles? Have they done deals within a specific property type? What's their track record look like in those deals? So that's a big component as well, how much they're investing alongside investors as a co-invest in the deal. And then we take a look at the return. We break apart kind of what are the assumptions behind the deal, looking at okay, what are the exit cap rate assumptions? What are the what's the net operating income look like? The cash flow profile. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that the, the assumptions going in are not aggressive, that they're at least reasonable, if not conservative. That helps us weigh the risk factors for the deal. Finally, we look at the macro environment. You know where are we in the business cycle? What can happen with interest rates and how much interest rate volatility affect this particular deal? We weigh those factors. And, and so putting it all together, we, we kind of have a, a methodology that scores things up. And anything that scores above 75, we usually feel pretty good about. Of course, we want the higher the score, the better. And anything below 75, we generally tend to avoid. So that's kind of our way of going out into the marketplace and sourcing what we think are the best deals available on the uh, platforms. So when you're looking
3: at all of this, and going through it and based on the experience that you've gained and kind of developing the score and looking at all the criteria, which criteria, if you had to pick one is most indicative of success or failure when
2: you're investing in these deals? It's a great question. And I think we're going to, that the answer might change as, as time goes on, and we do more deals and we, we kind of see how our score is actually doing because we've only been at this for about a year. I would say if I had to put all my chips in one basket, if I only have one factor to look at, I'd probably look at the sponsor. What have they done in, say, the years that they've been in operation? What kind of returns have they delivered to LP investors in their deals that have become realized? You know, And so shielding everything away, You know, what I'm looking for is a sponsor who probably has been in operation for at least 15 years, hopefully through not only this recent bout of pain that we're going through right now, but certainly through the, the financial crisis of 2008-2009. Were they doing deals prior to that? Uh, and what kind of success did they have through that? You know, what kind of skin do they have in the game? Uh, things like that. I think that's, you know, when, when I talk about stocks, and I've written about stocks for for a long time, one of the big things for me was always insider ownership. If I was looking at 10 companies that I thought were all reasonably attractive or equal, the one that I thought for the invest, the management team, the CEO had the most skin in the game would probably be the one I'd invest in. And I'd say that that carries through in real estate as well.
0: One of the investment principles that uh, Warren Buffett has is always look at the management team. If it's a good management team, then you're pretty much going to be in good hands. And uh, one of the things that I've always been taught in the real estate investing world is make sure the sponsor has skin in the game you know, whenever possible, because that means that their returns are tied to the success of the deal as well. And you know, no one's going to protect your money better than yourself, right? So uh, interests are aligned and uh, it typically makes sense. So, I, I think I, know I, I, I was sorry, yeah, Tom. I'd add one thing to that, too, is the promote
2: structure is obviously key as well. You know, a lot of uh, almost every deal, every deal, there's a promote structure that comes with it, which is just the extraordinary profit that the sponsor gives themselves based on certain return thresholds. It's similar to how hedge funds or private equity deals tend to work. And so, one of the things I like to look at is what's the spread between the target investor IRR, which is what the LPs are going to get, versus the project IRR. Which is generally how the sponsor is going to uh, do. And uh, the bigger the spread, the worse I think the the less friendly the deal is to the investor. And so one of the one of the tricks is not only looking at sponsor co invest, which we talked about, but just also be look for a low spread between that project IRR and the investor IRR. The lower the spread, the usually the, the more friendly the promo structure is um, behind the deal.
0: That makes a ton of sense, and so I know that. Um... That REITs, when you're doing REIT, valuing REITs, they are closer to the equities, the public equities, than obviously uh, the private real estate offerings. But how does the criteria differ when you're looking at REITs? Uh,
2: yeah, good question. It's it's different because with a REIT, you know, you're not looking at a single asset or a small portfolio of properties. You're looking at potentially dozens, if not hundreds, of properties under one umbrella company and I tend to think of reits as sort of mutual funds of real estate. You can of course specialize with sectors and things like that, but they they're very diversified which is which is great. I think again I'd anchor on management again with the reits, you know, one thing easy things to look at is okay. How long has this management team been managing this particular REIT? What is the track record of the stock? Has it outperformed the S&P 500 on a total return basis? Has it outperformed the VNQ, which is the Vanguard Real Estate ETF, which is highly diversified ETF that's cheap to invest in and, and follow if you want to get real estate exposure. and so if you have a management team that's been managing a REIT for say 15 or 20 years and over that time that particular REIT has outperformed those benchmarks, I'd say you have a pretty good you have a pretty good management team in place that's done well allocating capital. So I know REITs investors always tend to focus on the dividend yield and, and things like that and have, have they raised the dividend yield every year, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to me, the dividend is actually one of the lower, you know, least important components of a REIT, which seems weird. But I'm more focused on how the management's been allocating capital and how they've been sort of outperforming. If that's the case, then I, I have a complete confidence that they're going to allocate capital well. They're going to make acquisitions at the right time. They're going to dispose of assets at the right time. They're going to decide to take on joint ventures and grow when it makes sense to do so. Issue equity when it makes sense to do so. And so it's much less I, I could care less if they cut the dividend tomorrow or if they raise the dividend. It's, it's really about how they've allocated capital over time. So again, private commercial world, real estate world, look at the sponsor, read world, look at the management team. And that's where I tend to place most of my chips. Very interesting. And I think that from
3: our experience too, we would tend to agree with that. The sponsors can make a bad deal great or a great deal bad, right? And you have to really make sure that you understand who you're investing with more so than what you're investing in. At least that's my personal opinion on investing in syndicates and funds. Um, I I mean, we, we know sponsors that do phenomenally well in super compressed cap rate markets like San Francisco and New York City. And they make more money than people in eight to 10 cap markets that are out in the Midwest or in Texas, right? And it just depends on the sponsor, their experience, the operating structure. So really good stuff there. Now, I guess before I ask this question, I'm going to throw out the disclaimer here that whatever you're about to hear is not investment advice. We are not investment advisors. Uh, We know absolutely nothing. And uh, you should not listen to what we are about to say at all. But if you were interested in what we we're about to say, in your opinion, what is an appropriate portfolio allocation between stocks and real estate?
2: That's a great question. I would say, you know, I'm, I'm just if I'm looking at myself on a personal level, someone with moderate experience in real estate, it's more like 50 50. I certainly wouldn't start there for most investors. Uh, so, I, you know, I would say, what i love about real estate in particular is and i think a lot of investors don't understand or, or take this into account is that if you look at the returns of real estate based on several very long-term studies the returns have been comparable to the stock market at least on the investing side i'm not talking about your primary home uh, or things like that but on the commercial real estate side returns have been comparable to the stock market but your volatility in that asset class has been less than half so you could almost you could make the argument that real estate is a superior asset class if you're looking for Good returns with much less volatility, which makes your geometric returns look very, very good over time investing in real estate. Because of that, I tend to look at real estate as a fantastic substitute for someone, for example, who might think bonds are the right place to be allocating a lot of their portfolio. if they're a little more conservative, so they're on the 60-40 stock bonds or maybe 80-20. I would say give some consideration to allocate a significant portion of that bond, that quote, unquote, bond section of your portfolio to real estate. I think you can do just as well. The yields will be better. And there are probably periods of time when the volatility, even in real estate, is, is less than it is in bonds. And so I hope that over time, the average investor looks at real estate as more of a 20, 25% portion of their portfolio. That seems to me like the sweet spot. And, you know, of course, stocks tend to be a fantastic wealth builder. We know that they have been for decades, um, even though they're down 30% the last few weeks, which has been extremely painful uh, and historic. But so, Having a good solid component of real estate in your portfolio, I think, is is the way to go. So I would say start small, 10, 15%. But as you get
0: comfortable with the asset class, let's get that up to 20, 25%. That makes sense. And it's funny because we've asked a lot of people this question. And the problem is a lot of people we ask are pure real estate investors. So they'll say 100% in, in, in real estate. And uh, and look, you know, I, I consider myself a real estate investor, but uh, I don't have 100% of my assets in real estate. And I don't think I ever will. I do like that 50-50 split for some folks. Uh, but if you can get that 20-25% exposure, I think that also makes a lot of sense too, for people just kind of starting out there. Um and again, this is an investment or financial advice. But while we're on this topic, and I know you did mention COVID, do you have any words of wisdom for people out there who are trying to stay financially sane during this COVID crisis, seeing the prices of their stocks drop? You know, like you said, 35 percent over the last few weeks.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's been extraordinary, and you know, my advice is it's going to sound boring, but you know, it, it's never a time to panic. It's never a time to obviously hit the sell button. Uh, not something quite like this comes around often, but. You know, corrections, I hate calling them corrections because uh, it seems wrong to say it's correct when the stock market goes down. But declines in the stock market, significant declines, have come about very often. I think about once a year, actually, stocks tend to drop 10%. They, have, they tend to have a 10% drop. Every few years, there tends to be a 20% drop. And then, you know, once a decade, there tends to be a 30 40% drop. That's kind of what we've seen throughout history. Uh, this one's rare in the sense that we essentially slammed the brakes in the economy And you can see what's happened to the unemployment figures, which are just extraordinary. It looks like something out of science fiction in terms of the amount of people, sadly, they're applying for unemployment benefits. And that's because retail outfits, restaurants, you know, of all kinds have just really had closed shop. And unfortunately, a lot of them might not come back at this, this last very long time. So I would say, you know... You get to peers like this, if you're lucky enough to have some capital uh, you know, available, um, cash or, or other means, or maybe you're right now you're looking imbalanced because stocks are down and bo- your bond portfolio is up, again, not, not personal advice here, but I would say I would be someone who would consider taking more measured investments into the stock market. And this is my bias, but I would look at REITs. I mean, REITs have just been destroyed in this market. It's Usually, that's not the case. I mean, REITs tend to be correlated with the stock market. To a certain degree. But the devastation you've seen in a lot of REITs, a lot of great REITs, has been really unprecedented. I see some some of my favorite REITs are down 60, 70%. So more than twice the the fall of the market. And there's great assets there. Oftentimes, as long as you're not looking at, say, pure retail or pure hospitality REITs, there's some great opportunities in the space. And so I would start to be getting a little opportunistic. One area of the real estate market, multifamily, for example, I would say probably is going to hold up a lot better than some of the other. Uh, property types. And so uh, look for opportunities there, maybe in the industrial side as well, which will have some damage, but we should get through this pretty well. So I know the economy is going to be bad. We're going to get some really bad GDP numbers. The unemployment numbers are going to get worse. But I do think it's probably time to get a little bit opportunistic based on some of the valuations I'm seeing in the market. So, And I know it seems scary and there's so much uncertainty out there. And no one can pretend to see all through the dark clouds that are hovering over the economy and the markets, but I, I always tend to be a little optimistic and I look for opportunities. I feel I get interested in times like this as opposed to scared. Well, and the interesting thing, you know, you you
3: can be opportunistic in this type of environment, but we're seeing a lot of contraction around financing across the board. And some of our clients who are being opportunistic, they're not able to obtain loans. So it's just... There's a lot of moving parts here. So you might, I, I love what you're saying. You might have to, depending on how the banks end up playing ball, you might be looking at like midsummer until they open back up fully and, and start producing that financing. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking at the same thing. You know, we know that there are businesses that provide professional services to folks that might not necessarily have been very well structured for something like this coming their way. You got to have a lot of cash on hand in order to weather really any storm and where we're trying to band those people together and help them get through it too and, and make decisions. But at the end of the day, there's going to be opportunities by businesses in Q3, Q4, businesses that didn't quite make it or they did, but now they're bare bones and they need a capital injection to really kind of get back up on their feet and at the risk of sounding insensitive, but there will be a lot of opportunities and uh, you know, if you approach it from a, hey, I can come in and really help you get the business back on your feet or, or get this asset back on its feet and get a home for these tenants again, uh, then I think that you're in a great spot. We also have a couple of clients that are exploring continuing their CapEx projects. So the general advice at this point is you know, cut everything except for emergency spending. We don't know how long this is going to last, which I do think is good advice. But we do have a couple of clients who are just sitting on too much cash for their real estate. The projects that they have, and they're going, Well, we were planning on using all this to do capital improvements. We might as well continue on that path. And then, when the sky is clear later on this year, we will have fully renovated units that will be ready to rock and roll, whereas other people won't, and they'll have to start their CapEx projects at that point. So, you know, it's definitely like you have to look at your own business, you have to look at your own portfolio, and you have to understand how much working capital you need to reserve in order to weather the storm. And that's going to be very different. That answer is going to be different for a lot of different people, depending on what you have going on in your own business. But if you look at that and you say, Hey, I've got enough cash to to last and then I've got excess cash, then absolutely, man, I'm, I'm 100% in. Start looking for those opportunities to invest, uh, to, to pick up deals, to pick up businesses. And um, yeah, I mean, you, you should absolutely not fall victim to the negative press and the fear that is rapidly or has rapidly spread throughout
2: the US. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I agree. And the point you made is, you know, if, if you are, you know, asset to asset, you know, read to read, uh, if the ones that are well managed are going to be able to take advantage of this, you by your, like you said, front-loading CapEx that so they're planning to do later, or eventually again, depending on the, the credit markets, refinance at some incredible rates. Uh, there was a deal we just recommended a multifamily deal in Mogul that was able to acquire HUD financing. It's a multifamily development, which you know, forty-year at a fixed rate of three and a quarter percent. Which uh, their original profile two months ago was for almost four percent on that same loan. And so they're coming in really well capitalized. You know, it's only a sixty-five you percent know, I think LTV coming in, and they've got that great HUD financing with all the the crazy contingencies that you have to have with HUD financing. So. I actually feel you know, weirdly better about the deal today than I would have done before COVID-19. Um, again, nothing's great about what's happening with the economy, but there are certain sponsors, certain
0: deal by deal that's going to be able to take advantage of the situation. And being able to identify those is going to be key. Absolutely. I just want to add one more thing before we ask another question. Um, there's been a lot of our clients asking you know, what they should do and stuff like this. And because we can't give advice, I can only state what I'm doing. And one of the things that I spoke to another member of our firm was stick to your retirement plan. Don't deviate from it from this. So what I've been doing is just sticking to the course, making my monthly contributions to my retirement accounts, not making a big deal. But then outside of that, looking at putting some more money in the market during this opportune time. The one question I have, and again, not investment advice, just want to get your opinion on it, Matt, if you're open to sharing your opinion. Do you think this is the bottom of this crash or do you think the market still has room to bounce down? Good question. Uh, you know, the, the stock market tends to be a discounting
2: mechanism. We know that, right? So, you know, is down, I, I forget the lows, but I think we're down, yeah, close to 35%. Uh, Dow was below 20,000, you know, it's that and I know the stock market's bounced since then, I would say we should be cautious because I think the economic damage is going to be severe. And right now, the consensus out there is that the economy is going to bounce back pretty quickly, you know, by the fourth quarter, certainly by the beginning of 2021. And so, if the stock market starts anticipating that and it does so soon then probably we might have seen a bottom. I would argue that I still don't think we truly understand the medium to long-term implications of what's happened because it's not as if everyone suddenly goes back to work or businesses start reopening in 2 months from now when maybe we reach peak COVID-19 cases in the US. It's, I feel like there's going to be some scars that are that run pretty deep with this. A lot of especially maybe small banks and lenders aren't going to be going to demand more before lending to small businesses or restaurants. And and that's a shame, but that's probably the reality of it. There's going to be a lot of entrepreneurs who are going to be hesitant to start businesses knowing that, man, I could be at peak sales one month and then it goes to zero in a month, uh, which probably won't happen again. We hope not, but that fear is going to be out there, right? So I'm I'm a little more on sort of the U-shape in terms of the economy versus the V-shape. And as a stock market bond, you know, (laughs) uh, that's the the magical question. I don't know, but I always think about Warren Buffett, right? If you remember 2008, Warren Buffett, I think, had a great op ed piece in October. I think it was early October of 2008, where he said, I think the headline was Buy American, I Am, or Buy Stocks, I Am. I can't quite remember, but he was saying, Hey, look, I'm buying stocks. But you got to remember, it took about five more months for the market to actually bottom after Warren Buffett wrote that editorial piece. And so I think this thing probably lasts a bit longer, uh, certainly through the summer, before we can say, okay. There's a light at the end of this tunnel, the market's going to start
0: discounting that and we're back up again. Great answer. And I appreciate you being candid about that. So we, we ask everybody this question. Everybody comes on the show. Uh, what is your favorite piece of technology or software that you couldn't live without?
2: <laughs> you know, I was struggling to think of a good answer um, because I have a one-year-old son. And so my life has changed dramatically. But i say before my son came around, I could live without steam which is the gaming platform. I'm a bit of a video game person myself. And that has been totally curtailed over the last year (laughs) uh, with my, with my son and things I've done. And, but I mean, there was a while where I I pretty much was a steam junkie and and it's weird because the beauty of steam is that I know everyone loves the online multiplayer games. And that's what people are, are fanatical about. I'm like, I'm the guy who's out there looking for the game that I played 15 years ago when I was in college or, you know, or in my early twenties, I love, and you can go and usually you can go into steam and find them. And the beautiful thing is there's also a, a huge community of gamers out there that are acquiring the IP for a lot of these classical games and sort of re, re-engineering them for, you know, modern gaming systems and modern PCs. I'm getting into the weeds here as a nerd, but uh, anyway, so that, uh, I know it's not quite a piece of the technology, but man, I love the platform. I love the network of steam. And so that I'm hesitant say, if my mom said I could live without it, she'd, punch me in the face but uh it is definitely one of those things that uh, i love that exists and I should, there'd be a hole in my heart if steam suddenly went away
0: <laughs> i love steam as well i used to have uh i, I had steam back in the day like back in 2006 <laughs> and um yeah. man, i used to play counter-strike source on that loved it that's what that's what started it all it was like half-life and then counter Strike, and then <laughs> You know, I, I'll admit, I had uh, I had a really good Steam account. I had all the Half Life Two, the entire package back then. But then I got fancy. Me and my friends started to get fancy. Started wall hacking in uh, Counter Strike, and uh, and we got I got my account banned. But it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> honestly. That's great. That's great. Hope that was an okay answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. I mean, it's it's more candid answer than some of the things we've gotten in the past. We've gotten a, you know always Calendly or Zoom or something like that. You know, it's typical oh, stuff. This is this
2: yeah, it's it's hard. Zoom. I mean, wow, right? I mean, just it, it's worked so well, and we were using Zoom at the Molly Full as you guys were probably before this all happened. But it is now basically an essential uh service. So yeah, I, I don't I don't begrudge your other podcast attendees for for mentioning Zoom. Certainly, like been a lifesaver uh,
0: for me and my company. So, so if our listeners want to learn more about you or learn more about million acres or the local program at at the Motley Fool, how could they do so? Sure.
2: Well, the easiest thing is just go to million Uh, we've got a, there's just hundreds of articles, free articles there. There's new articles coming out every day about the real estate market. And, uh, you can actually, there's uh, there's a, I think it's a free 50 page ebook that you can download if you, if you come to the site and, I've written a lot of content for that ebook, but it talks about just ways to get started as a real estate investor, how to look at REITs, how to think about syndicated deals. So it's, it's all free content and it's all right there. So come check that out. And then if you're interested in learning about Mogul, there's some language there as well if you want to learn about our premium service and what that might be able to do for your real estate investing portfolio. So millionacres.com,
0: check it out. Awesome, awesome. And I have to attest, like I said before, there, there's some interesting deals on there. Definitely worth checking out if you're on the LP investor side. Matt, thanks again for coming on the show today and being so candid with what's going on in the stock market, sharing your opinion. Uh, We definitely appreciate that. And we're looking forward to putting this out. All right. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for having me. If you haven't already heard, the IRS has moved both the individual tax filing deadline and the payment deadline to July 15th, 2020, to help combat the impact of the coronavirus and as many professional tax preparers and firms have been disrupted. Luckily, as a virtual CPA firm, the Real Estate CPA has been able to maintain operations with little disruptions. If your tax preparer has been affected and you're eager to have your tax returns prepared and filed to receive your refund, we may be able to help. Visit www.therealestatecpa.com become-client to fill out a brief web form and we'll discuss how we may be able to help you achieve that goal. Stay safe out there and thank you for listening to the Real Estate CPA Podcast.